Big problems need big problem solvers. Kevin Kalaki's guest this episode is that problem solver. Yash Saberwal is the CEO of Cherry Circle Software and a serial entrepreneur. His current focus is creating software solutions for the life sciences industry that can speed up the development of potentially life-saving therapies while driving down costs at the same time. And as you will hear, Yash is focused on not just investment return, but also a better future for patients and their families. Yash, thank you so much for spending some time this afternoon with me on the podcast, Uncorrelated Minds. Um, you know, there's long history between us. We've known each other for quite some time, uh, and I'm excited to have you tell not just the story of, you know, a QBD vision, but also your story and, and how you came to the point, as we were just talking about before the podcast, that you wanted to tackle this big problem. So. Um, I'll start off just the overall kind of vision of QDB vision, if we can say that, is solving biotech's biggest digital challenges. So before we jump into that, go ahead and let's start. The day you finished your doctoral program, you went straight into the startup world. So would you do that again, knowing what you know now? The short answer is yes. Uh, you know, it's funny because I, went to do my PhD uh, for a very specific reason. And that was um, that there was a, there was a, there was a, a broader goal for me. I've always wanted to do entrepreneur, entrepreneurship. And uh, I felt that going and getting my PhD was going to be important uh, in order to do that. One would say, well, why there's no, you know, you're not learning anything about business or finance or anything like that. But I would say that one of the things you learn when you go and do your PhD is how to solve complex problems, very complex problems. How do you take something that hasn't been done before you want to go solve it? And how do you deconstruct that into smaller problems, which you can then kind of, you know, uh, reassemble back into the solution of the big problem? So that was a natural progression in my career objective, which was to go into entrepreneurship. It's funny because at the time, this was the late 90s. Uh, I was coming out of the optics program. At the time, optical engineers were in very high demand because it was the dot-com boom, uh, fiber optic, you know, fiber telecommunications, fiber optics were being uh, laid all over the place. You had companies like Lucent and Nortel that were hiring like crazy, uh, hiring a lot of my graduate student colleagues who were getting very big salaries and bonuses on top of that. And here I was deciding that I was going to, you know, sleep in my futon uh, next to my desk and try to start a company. Uh, but ultimately, you know, it worked out quite well for me. And I, and I, I realized in that whole experience that the process of building a company can be very fulfilling because you're going after problems that, no, that other people haven't solved and solving those big problems is what really ends up, you know, driving me. And uh, so the short answer is yes. Um, I have no regrets around doing that and, you know, doing it also when you don't have a family, you're young, you're single, uh, the only thing you have to lose is whatever little bit you have and you can, 
you know, get back up on your feet and brush yourself off and go do what you were going to do anyway. You know, if, uh, if that's what it was going to be, it's, it was a, it was a lower risk proposition at the time. So it worked out. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a great experience. Certainly set me up for the rest of my entrepreneurial career. And I have no, uh, no regrets around that. Well, good. I know there's a, uh... There's exits and then there's exits when, when you have a company. But uh, I always uh, marvel at any entrepreneur who has a, a successful exit and a single one. Um, but you are, you're now working on your third company and, and two previous exits from companies that I would say were in the successful bucket. So tell me about you know what you did with the first company and how that transitioned into the second company. And now, uh, I've never called you Dr. Soberwall before, but Dr. Soberwall is the CEO of a software company with a PhD in optics. So how do you go from that point A to whatever point we're at here, which I think is probably mid alphabet for you? Uh, it's definitely not Z. Well, uh, it's interesting. You know, it's we've talked about this before, I think, and I've talked about this with other people where, you know, for me, the concept of reinvention is an important one um, for me personally as a as a personal objective you know, reinventing myself is something that I like to do periodically, and it's incredibly fulfilling and humbling. So, you know, coming out of my PhD program, I was, you know, ready to be a great optical engineer, I could have gone and worked at any one of these companies, and, and, and tackled some of the problems that they were working on. Uh, but I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so that meant taking a step back and being in a position where I'm doing something that I don't know how to do. I understand the technical aspects of what we were doing as a company, but the business aspects were quite foreign to me and, and my colleagues as well. My, you know, I started that company with two other students that came out, of, came out of graduate school with me. And so we were trying to figure it out along the way. And uh, there's, you know, it's sort of that adventure explorer kind of personality where you're, you're trekking down a path that you don't know where it's leading exactly. But the, uh, there's a lot of sort of excitement and fulfillment in doing that while you're in the process of trying to solve this problem. And it's not to say that it was easy. I mean, there were many times where we came close to just, you know, calling it quits and saying, let's just go and, you know, make some reasonable money. And, and why are we doing this to ourselves, right? But of course, we kept going. And, and then we were able to, you know, ultimately grow the company and, and be acquired. And, uh, and that was incredibly fulfilling to have that first exit after eight years of sort of struggling and slogging away at, at, at doing something we didn't know how to do. Um, and at that point, I realized after we had exited that uh, probably the next thing I was going to do was not going to involve optics. So, you know, optics was my education. It was the it was the crux of what we did as a company, uh, but it was time to, you know, move on to something else. And so I took some time off at that point, met my future wife uh, in Arizona. She, uh, you know, Jessica brought me back here to Austin. And uh, it was great because I knew Austin was a hotbed of entrepreneurial activity, something I had been wanting to explore for a while coming to Austin. So it fit from a career perspective. And, you know, lo and behold, six months later, I got an opportunity to join a pharmaceutical company. And so here I was again, reinventing myself because I didn't know anything about the pharmaceutical business. I, I did know now how to start and build a company from nothing. So I had that experience, but I didn't have any experience in the business. So it was an opposite situation of what I had before. 
where I understood the technical material, didn't know anything about how to build a business. Now I hear I was knowing how to build a business, but not knowing anything about what we were doing as a company. Uh, again, a very uh, uh, fun and exciting opportunity, but it was also solving a big problem again. You know, here we had a pop- here we have a population of of people with diabetes. You know, around the world, uh, you you know, one of the challenges of of being a person with diabetes is that you can have severe hypoglycemia, and at that time, the only way you could treat severe hypoglycemia. So now you're you're past a point where you can. Uh, just eat something or drink some juice to get your sugar back up. You are at a point where you may be having a seizure. You're not sure what's happening. You may be um, in a coma and it's a very serious situation. And the only products that were available were powders of sort of powdered vials of glucagon that you, somebody would have to mix with, with water at that time and give and then inject that into you, right? So, the challenge, of course, is that in the middle of an emergency like that, the the person that's probably around is not a medical professional, right? And uh, and so, the the likelihood was that somebody was just going to call nine one one, and so there you are, still with low sugar, very low sugar, potentially you know a life threatening situation, and you're waiting 10, 15 minutes for. Uh, the ambulance to show up when somebody could have injected you with this, but the product presentation was so difficult that nobody knew how to do it and, and they wouldn't do it, right? So this technology that that Xeris Pharmaceuticals, which is the company that that was that was, you know, I was joining, the, the technology they had developed was a way, it was a, a very interesting uh, formulation technology that got rid of that problem. It essentially allowed you to create an EpiPen style injectable drug that you could just take the cap off and push it into somebody and it would deliver the drug that's already mixed for you. And, you know, that has a considerable impact on the propensity to save somebody's life in a, in an emergency situation like that. And so when anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people die a year from this situation, it was a pretty uh, interesting problem to go after. And so uh, that was a great opportunity. You know, I learned a lot about the pharmaceutical business uh, got to, you know, learn about, um, how drugs are developed, uh, how they're, uh, ultimately, you know, approved by the FDA and marketed and so forth. But I also discovered another problem in that, in that scenario, uh, going through that, going through that experience, which was, you know, as we were trying to figure out how to scale up the production of this drug for manufacturing in larger volumes, I realized that, uh, the industry was still utilizing pretty antiquated software tools, essentially, you know, Microsoft Word and Excel and PowerPoint, emails, you name it, right? Just documents, reports. The the way in which information was managed uh, to you know over the life cycle of the development process made it very difficult to make good decisions, to use your data, to see in in a in a in a holistic way what was happening with your program and then be able to prioritize appropriately, you know, what you needed to do and when you needed to do it. So when I left Xeris uh, in 2016, the new management team was coming in to take the company public. Uh, Xeris is now a public company today. And actually that product that we started with is now an approved product on the market that people can use to save the lives of those who are in a very 
difficult situation with severe hypoglycemia. So that's, you know, an incredibly uh, fulfilling uh, thing to see happen where the, the, the project you were working on, you know, over an eight year span now is a, is an approved product, you know, uh, available for people with diabetes. Um, when I left in 2016, I decided that, you know, after I took a few months off that uh, I was going to go after this problem. Now, how do you do a better job of, of, uh, you know, managing, capturing and managing and using the information that's being generated across multiple departments, across multiple disciplines, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and, and then utilize that information to go faster. Right. Uh, so here I was again, starting over, right. This is the yeah. theme of reinvention yeah. comes back again. Right. So started a business that I went into pharmaceuticals. Now I have a background in the pharmaceutical problem Two iterations of starting a business, but now it's a cloud-based software solution, which I've never, you know, worked on before. Yeah. I was going to say, if, if you would, the, um, you know, it, reading through all of the, the company literature, if, if you are not in the pharma industry, uh, it is uh, maybe actually literally Greek, some of it, but, uh, you know, you read through it, there's a, there's a lot of very complex problems that, that are being solved by what you're doing, but you have a wonderful analogy. And when you gave the analogy of baking the cake, it really hit home for all of those that were, were kind of looking at your company at a high level. It's like, Wow, that is that is actually a big problem in understanding really what the FDA wants out of a drug development process. I had no idea before I, I met you as you were tackling this problem. I met you before, but as you started tackling this problem, really just if you could tell our listeners that, you know, what is the problem? What is that big problem you're solving? And if you could use the analogy, I think that's going to hit home the most. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so most people think about drug development from the clinical side. So how safe is the drug? Does it, does it provide the, is, is it efficacious for treatment as it, as it's intended to be? And we've seen a lot of this conversation over the past couple of years with the pandemic, right? The discussions around vaccines and are they safe? Uh, do they work? If they do work, how do they work? What are we actually saying they're, they're, they're good at doing? Most of the focus tends to be on the clinical side. Uh, there is less focus from a commercial perspective or the commercial view, if you will, on the manufacturing side. And so this is where we get to this discussion of baking cakes. And the idea here is that, you know, if you were to start your own cake business and you are small and you're going to make, you know, 10 cakes a week, you can probably do that in your house using your commercial oven, right? Or your, your, your home oven. If you now are going to say, well, I'm growing and I need to make hundred cakes a week. Well, you can't do that in your house anymore. Not only can you, and, and not only can you not do it in your house, you need a whole new set of equipment. You need, you need commercial ovens, you need bigger mixers. And the question becomes, well, you know, does my recipe change? How does my recipe change? How do all the things that I do when I'm baking the cake change when I have to go from 10 cakes a week to hundred cakes a week, right? And then, of course, the next problem is now, well, now if I have to go to 10,000 cakes a week, what happens, right? Or I have to go to 50,000 cakes a week, what happens then? This is the other side of drug development that most people don't, they're not aware of, 
right? And but the FDA is keenly aware of it. And one of the things that they are uh, very focused on when they think about approving a drug is not only is it safe and efficacious, but can the company manufacture it at the volumes that they are saying they're going to need to manufacture it while maintaining the level of control from a quality perspective that keeps the drug safe? That is you know, a huge challenge in the industry as you go from making a thousand syringes, injections to you know, 10,000 to 100,000 to a million per, you know, per batch. And if you think about the level of the, the number of vaccines that have, that have had to be made, you know, scaling that up in a very rapid way is challenging if you don't have access to all the information that you need to have access to, right? Uh, you can hand your cake recipe off to somebody and say, well, this is kind of how I make the cake. And that's great, but when you have to have it in a very controlled fashion and every slice or every cake has to taste exactly the same, have the same moisture, have the same color, have all the things that are required in order for it to be a good quality cake and meet its intended purpose, that's a very challenging thing to do and to do that quickly. And I think we've seen some of the challenges with that, with the industry where they've been able to make a certain volume, but certainly not enough to keep pace with what's been needed. And we see that this is a problem across the board, not just for vaccines, it's for anything. It's what takes the industry, it's why it takes so long to get drugs to market as well. We think that's a, that, that problem um, puts manufacturing on a critical path that slows things down and it, it, it takes longer than for these treatments to get to patients, which just isn't, necessary and it can be remedied in our opinion. And we think one of the ways to remedy that is to have much better uh, software tools out there, software solutions uh, for the industry. And that's, that's the problem we're trying to solve right now. Yeah. Well, I mean, you and I've had a number of conversations about, you know, just the, I don't, I can't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the, the, rapid development of the, the COVID-19 vaccines and really just what a miracle it was that that, that came out and, and did what it did. And I, I wouldn't have understood exactly how amazing it was that all of these companies were able to do that unless I had talked to you before about that manufacturing process. Um, so give, give, if you could just give the listeners the idea, if, if you were to develop a vaccine on a normal non-rushed basis, how long would that usually take from an FDA process, and then what did we do? And then really how, you know, what I see, you know, your company doing is really speeding up that time in the production side of the drug, not the clinical side of the drug, but shrinking that time frame from when a drug is created to getting it to market at scale. Yeah, I think there were two things that happened with uh, the approaches that were taken. So if you think about how vaccines were made 10 years ago, you know, the, the, generally the technology was let's take the existing virus, let's inactivate it and let's give it back. Let's inject it in you. And then, you know, structurally the body sees it, the virus can't do anything because it can't infect cells and, and replicate, but structurally the key pieces are there for the body to recognize that it's foreign. And then you, uh, and then you've built, you build your immunity, you know, you build your prime, your immune system that way. Right. Uh, that, that approach has been what's used for a long time. And uh, the process of making 
those cells uh, that way, making the viruses, inactivating them, all that work, those are complex processes that take a long time to, to figure out and to actually manufacture the, the virus. You don't, you can't scale them up as quickly uh, as you can with some of the new technologies today. So I think the first big step was the whole idea of the mRNA vaccine, right? So the technologies that were developed by Moderna and BioNTech and others uh, is a game changer because it's now saying, well, we don't need to figure out how to make the, the, the vaccine based on the virus cells themselves. We just need to figure out what are the instructions to have your own body produce the antigen, they call it, so that your body can recognize it, right? That's a very different uh, approach and a very different technology. And the whole, the whole impetus for that is it, it's, it's a lot more specific. And obviously, you, you can scale that a lot. That lot, lot, a lot faster. If you read some of the articles around the work that was done at UT and other places when, when the um, when the first SARS uh, virus happened about twenty years ago, a lot of those folks figured out back then that this was going to happen again, and there needed to be a, a a series of mechanisms in place and technologies put together to help figure out very quickly when it does happen what's going on. So by the time it did happen again, you know, all these new technologies were in place in terms of sequencing the, the virus to figure out exactly what it was, all the imaging technologies to figure out the structures, the protein structures, so on and so forth. Then being able to figure out, you know, then send it to companies like Moderna and say, look, here's what this virus looks like. Here's some possibilities for targeting it, having them run their libraries and their AI algorithms to figure out what's the best, what is the mRNA sequence that we need to code for. So these were all things that were built up over a couple of decades. And uh, it all was sort of in place when this happened, which gave, you know, it, it, it took us to the point where uh, Moderna was able to within three weeks, I think, after they got the, uh, after they got the, um, the sequence, uh, after they got the virus information, excuse me, they were able to figure out the mRNA sequences, I think within three to four weeks and start and start making those, right? And so it's that is a game changer. The only thing that we didn't know was that there'd never been a vaccine that had been developed with this technology before. So the big question was, what was the safety profile gonna be and so forth, right? So that was then had to be tested in clinical trials. And so, all of that work went pretty quickly. It was very, um, you know, relatively speaking, uh, you know, a lot of software information technologies came together to do that. But on the manufacturing side, you, you, were, you were putting a lot of resources to make things go faster, but I wouldn't say that there are more efficient resources in place to do that. And that's the problem we're trying to solve is to say, okay, when this happens again, and it will happen again at some point, and you need to make a lot of a lot of medicines very quickly. You need better information technology solutions in place to drive that efficiency uh, in a way that you can automate a lot of the activities that are still done very manually right now. Uh, and in terms of demonstrating that level of quality control to the FDA, so uh, that's the that's the path that we're on at this point. Uh, but it is no doubt that that what you said is absolutely true. What the industry accomplished in the amount of time that they that they did is an absolute miracle. It was it was amazing. But there was a lot of work that was done ahead of time to get to that 
to, to make that happen, right? Yeah. And, and in essence, on the manufacturing side, you know, ICQDB Vision is almost um, creating a tribal knowledge base in certain drug developments of the processes that made it work quickly, documenting that so you're not, you know, starting over with your cake every time, right? You're going, going back to the point in time where, you know, hey, it's a little dry, maybe I had too much egg and I need to take an egg out. And you're going back to that point instead of going back to starting to mix the flour with the sugar and then coming on through, I think was the example you used. I, and just full fair disclosure to our listeners. I don't know if more or less eggs dries things out or not. I've just, I'm not, you know, I'm not good in the kitchen. So. Yeah. And that's a great point as well too, Kevin, because a lot of the new technologies that are coming out, especially in precision medicine, cell and gene therapy, so on and so forth are platform technologies. So if you think about making a platform cake, right? So I have a, you know, I have a cake, I know there's flour in it, I know there's sugar in it, there's, you know, water and eggs and milk and, and, and all the different ingredients. And actually, if you talk to bakers, they'll tell you there's formulas for all of them. There's, there's very specific ratios for how much fat you should have relative to, to water or, or sugar to flour. There's a lot of bakers percentages that the bakers know that they use. Right. So imagine, you know, you're going to, you're going to create a platform of making cakes and sometimes it'll be chocolate and other times it'll be vanilla. But for the most part, 90% of that information is consistent from one cake recipe to the next. Right. So now you can, you can put together the template in a system like ours and dial it in for your first cake. And then when you go to make your next cake type of cake, you can just kind of copy that, make some slight modifications because now you're going to add chocolate or you're going to, you know, make it a German chocolate cake, whatever you want to do. Right. Um, but you're not starting from scratch again. You have made you have a new you have a baseline of information that covers 80 to 90 percent of what you're already going to do. And so that's how you're starting to create those efficiencies in a way that's really, um, really meaningful for for the industry. I, I think that all of this stuff is is immensely fascinating to me because a, I know very little about it, but B you are tackling the big problems and um, you know, maybe I could just pivot a bit and just go back and tell the story of when you and I met is uh, I was actually giving a presentation at uh, the Austin technology council and ended up sitting next to you. And uh, I, we started talking and all of a sudden you threw out the terms, you know, pre-money post money as we're talking about valuations on venture deals. And I was like, okay, I'm going to connect with this guy at, at a very good level because he knows the business side of the business. Like you really understood the fundraising. Obviously they don't teach you venture fundraising in your PhD optics program. They probably didn't really even know what you're doing with your first company. So what is your advice to other people who are really trying to tackle a big problem when it comes to, okay, I'm focused on my problem, but I also need to know and understand the business side of things. How, how did you learn that? Give us the story of how you learned that and how you've now applied it forward into launching your own company. Well, the first piece of advice I'd give everybody is take an accounting class. Um, I, so one thing, one of the opportunities I had while I was in the PhD program was that I figured out I could go and take classes at um, the school, the management school. So this is the University of Arizona. So the Eller School of Management, I could go take classes there and I, I could just go take classes there. As long as there was an opening for me, I couldn't take the spot of an MBA student, right? So I went over there and I asked, I you know, decided to see if there was an accounting class available. And so there was, and I took it. 
And uh, then I went to, I was going to take the finance class, but that was full. So I couldn't do that one. But I took an organizational behavior class, which was also great. It's great for helping figure out how to, you know, manage your personnel and hire people and, and just the things you should think about. So uh, I was, I, I guess, a bit entrepreneurial in terms of taking those, those classes, but you know, having some background in accounting and finance was critical. And, and where I learned finance ultimately was watching CNBC every day for 10 years, right? I did. I would get up every morning and watch it. And as you watch it, you start to learn, you see the patterns, you start to recognize, you know, what's happening when there's an M&A, how are they talking about it? You know, all the things around, around uh, premiums to stock price when some, somebody gets bought or sold. These are very sort of practical pieces of finance that I picked up on after you know watching it watching it for a long time. So that was very uh, helpful uh, because at 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 my first company at Optical Insights, I was responsible for the finance piece, and then when I went to Zeris, I was uh, initially the CFO and the COO, and uh, did a lot of the initial work in terms of building the models, the 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 uh, the valuation models. It was it was interesting because in a pharma company or biotech company, you don't generate value by generating revenue in the early days, right? You're not going to see revenue for 10, 12 years. So your path to value creation is by hitting regulatory milestones and then getting development deals done with, with bigger, bigger pharma companies. But still, you have to build the models, uh, justify them, you know, explain to investors what you're doing and how you've discounted it. So the whole idea of discounted cash flow and so forth is, uh, is important to know. But ultimately it comes down to, do you understand your business and can you help somebody understand overall what's, what's the value you're creating, especially when it's, it's, a, you know, it's a, a venture capital kind of deal. It's a high risk deal. And I remember uh, one, of the, uh, one of our angel investors, I went to see him after, uh, he hadn't invested yet. We were, we were doing our A round. And uh, he said, so we talked about it for a little while. And then he just kind of looked at me and said, what's the probability that I'm going to get my money back? <laughs> Very good question. And so I just kind of folded up my stuff at that point, And I said, well, I said, it is highly likely that you will not see this money again. I said, there's, there's a pretty good chance that you won't see this money again. Which is the that, most that, honest answer you could have given him. Right. <laughs> right. I said, but I said, if we do this right, the multiple will be, you know, is, is based on the, based on the averages, it's, it's pharma, pharma multiples tend to be pretty high. So this is a high risk, high return scenario. And you just need to know that going into this, right? This isn't something incremental, Lots of pharma companies don't make it. Um, and there's a lot writing on whether the science works or not. And, you know, the money that we're looking to get from this first round of investors is to help prove out some of that science, right? So, um, so yeah, ultimately it comes down to just being honest with people and letting them understand that you can analyze this all day long, but ultimately it's a high risk, high return scenario. Uh, because there's a lot of technical risk involved with it. You know, it's very different from a conversation I'd have with an investor about, about Cherry Circle software and the QBD vision platform, right? Uh, there's no technical risk in what we're doing. 
right? Writing software is not, I mean, people know how to write software. We're essentially building databases and, and connecting information. So the technical risk is kind of off the table. It's really market risk, right? So that's a different, different scenario. Um, so, you know, I think uh, that's, that's some of the, the uh, it, it, some of the experiences I've had and some of the advice I would give to people. I think the other thing too, that's really important, you know, when it comes to fundraising is, you know, tell people what you're going to do and then go do it. Right. And show them that you did it. I had, I've had a lot of people tell me that that was somehow not something that they see very often where somebody says, well, I'm going to go do these three things the next six months. And then they come back in six months and they start talking about something else. They don't talk about the three things that they said they were going to do and whether they did them or not. Or, or even have a story for why you didn't do them. What, you know, the, the, the classic word in startup land is pivot, right? It's a, if we had to pivot, why did we pivot and what did we pivot towards? And, and are we having success there? Not just the land of pivots, which we've heard that right. many, many times. <laughs> um, well, for our last piece, I think one part that a lot of our listeners would be fascinated to learn about is as a founder and a startup founder doing something different is building the culture of your firm and your people and why that is so important, uh, maybe even more so now than back in the 80s and 90s when you were launching out in the optics world? Well, I don't know that I'd say it's more important now than it was before. I think culture, I think culture and the team you build is always critical. And the reason it's so critical is that the land, the world of the startup is highly uncertain, uh, right? So you end up in a situation where uh, you're, you've got a new product. It's never been built before. Something like this has never been developed before. You're trying to figure out how are you going to sell it to people? And a lot of times you are, you know, we've talked about this in the past. A lot of times that people don't see the value of what you're, what you're doing or proposing until you actually build it and show it to them. Right. So it's hard to get that market validation ahead of time because they can't even conceive of what you're talking about. So uh, being able to, you know, so going and building it and then showing people gives you, then they see, oh, wow, I didn't know this was even possible. So you, you always end up with this, this situation where there's all kinds of things happening. You're not sure exactly how to, uh, it's not, there's no clear path. Like nobody's giving you a, a script that says, hey, just go do this and you'll be successful, Right. Uh, so when that's a, that's a situation, you need to have people around you who are adaptive and they're smart and they're persistent and they have all the things that that you need and, and they're good at working with with their team members and they're good at helping each other because, you know, some days somebody's down, some days somebody's up, some days somebody's having a great day, some days somebody's crushing it, some days somebody just fell on their face, right? It, it's a constant uh, it's a constant, you know, stream of activities like that until you get to a point where you, you, you hit that critical mass, you hit that traction, and then it's a little bit more predictable. And in those early unpredictable days, you need a very resilient team of people around you to, um, to get through the, the emotional roller coaster of, of, of being an entrepreneur, but also just the, trying to figure out how do you actually do this, right? And um, 
And that's, that's, that's so, that's just so key. I, I think there's a, there's often a, a discussion that's happened, you know, when you start a company, should you have partners or should you not have partners? Right. Some people say, no, I can't do partners. Other people say I can't do without partners. Right. And I'm just one of those people that says I can't do it without partners because there's so much that has to happen. Uh, it, it's, it's, I can't see how you would do it without partners. And even if you're the, the only founder, if you don't treat your rest of your management team, like your partners, there's going to be a problem at some point, you know, there's going to be a problem at some point. Yeah, so I agree. that's almost 100%. a moot question, whether you do partners or not do partners, you need, you need a team of people to help you go after something big. And, uh, and so that sets then, and then if you're going to set, if you're going to create that team and it's going to be effective over the long run, then that's when the culture piece comes in. Right. Uh, you know, setting up an environment where people feel comfortable speaking their mind, right. Not feeling like, or not acting like, uh, you know, you're afraid of hiring people better than you. So, you know, we have this constant discussion that, you know, we, we say it all the time in our meetings, we're always trying to hire people better than us at the, at the, at the senior management level. Right. Uh, we we're, we want to hire people that will talk to, that will speak their mind. There's no, there's no penalty, you know, for respectfully disagreeing and, 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 you know, saying what you want to say, there's no penalty for going and doing something and failing at it. We'll just talk about it and say, okay, so did that work? Why didn't that work? You know, we don't want to kill people's initiative. And so, cause at this, at, especially at this early stage, you know, all we have is initiative, right? That's all we've got. You know, you got to have sales initiative and development initiative and customer success initiative. And how am I going to do something? Nobody's telling me what to do, but I see that there's a gap, right? And, uh, and so I've had, we've had these conversations across the board and, you know, we, we, we bring on interns and, you know, we had one intern we brought on recently very ambitious young man. He reached out to me and said, I'd like to talk to you. You know, I know you're the CEO, but I'd like to talk to you. Okay, sure. Here's 30 minutes. Let's talk. What do you want? Yeah. What do you want to talk about? Yeah. Love right? the initiative. And, uh, yeah, go for it. So we really encourage that. And it's been incredibly impactful for us as an organization. I mean, we get, we do things with our size that most people marvel at because of the initiative that people show and just how talented they are. I know also when you're, when you are tackling big problems uh, and even tackling small problems, even problems with inside, inside the company or, or between people is when you, when you have a group of intelligent people who are willing to disagree with each other and have the ability to disagree with each other, that's where almost the magic happens. You know, that's, that's where the, the big ideas and the initiatives where it's like, Hey, I want to do this. And then someone says, yeah, I disagree with you, but what about this? And then if you really do have open-minded people who have that ability to disagree, that doesn't become a, I can't believe he's shooting down my idea because there's no ladder to climb in the small, like you're not going to like take Yasha's job, you know, as the founder and CEO of the company yet. And so you're really doing it to improve things. And when everyone gets in that mindset and everyone is pointing, I see this with many, many startups is that they, they build that culture of, 
out, you disagree because you think something could be done better and that the outcome for our client is what the end result is of all of it. Every disagree, disagreement or every time you're thinking about doing something better is because you want a better outcome for your user, your end user. Yeah, I mean, I the the feedback that we get from our engineers or our or you know my my chief operating officer or uh, even our customer success person or whoever, um, what ends up happening is is that it it it, it precipitates a conversation that then always leads to something better. That's what I found because we all have our biases. We all come in with sometimes very strong biases, and I, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of that. Even if the ideas that have been presented, there's no resolution around that particular disagreement at that point in time. I certainly spent a lot of time thinking about what that other person said, even though I didn't disagree with it. And then I start to see that side of it. And then I think about it more. And then I say, okay, this is my side, that's that side. And I see the benefits of how do we put it together? How do we take the best of both to come back and, and then you have that better solution? And you can't have that if, if nobody's willing to stand up and say, you know, I think differently. And so um, it's, uh, it's, and that's actually the, the, the most interesting parts of this is, is, the, is that sort of churn of, of, of discussion and feedback that just, gives you something better in the end. I, I really, I really enjoy that aspect of what we do as a company. Uh, agreed. So last question for you, hopefully this will, will wrap things up for the day. We can send you back out and to solve big problems in the world instead of chatting on a podcast with me. But um, you, you know, you are part of a company, you founded a company that is growing. And as you are moving on to the next stage of growth for the company, um, what would you say to a potential investor to, say, hey, this is the problem we're trying to tackle and this is why I want you to come along with us as an investor. Again, we are, we are going after solving a very big problem that ultimately is gonna have a, a, a big impact uh, for society as a whole. Uh, and my, I, I firmly believe that. You know, as we, as we move forward and you think about what's happened the past couple of years, you can see why that matters you know, to you, it matters to everybody. And I, and I think as investors, you know, for me, at some point, when I think about investing in the future, you know, I want to, it, it, I, I feel like a lot of times investors get too caught up in, well, what's the return going to be? Right. And, and you have to, you have to think about, you know, what's the return going to be? Does the risk match the, you know, ma match the reward and so forth? But ultimately, when you're investing in grand ideas, right, you're, you're, you're investing in something better, right? You're investing in a better state of society, a better, a better way of existing, a, a better um, overall experience for all of us as a society and as, as a species on this earth, in my opinion, right? And so... What I want to, when I, when I'm talking to an investor or if an investor is thinking about what we're doing, you know, I would say to them, if your goal is to increase your return by a certain percentage points, you know, we're probably not the right investment for you. Our focus is on really changing on how, uh, how things are done. And that means you're changing behavior and changing behavior is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Right. So, 
but if you change that behavior, that, um, that can be very, very meaningful for what happens next. And if that's the journey you want to be on with us, then we would love to have you because that's all the people that we have s- surrounded ourselves with, all the people that come to us and work for us are all on that same journey with us. They want, they want to uh, make things you know, uh, systematically better uh, in a way that can have a lot of, that could have tremendous impact for all of us. And uh, I encourage all of those people that are interested in that kind of journey to come, come on that journey with us. Well, and I'll say this just to wrap it up that, you know, your, your tagline here, solving biotech's biggest digital challenges. I think it's also um, in a way you're solving the challenges that we don't even know we are going to face yet. So by having this in place, you're putting the, you know, that programmatic base in place to put, to, to allow like the, all of the researchers who did the, the MNRA vaccine research over the last 20 years, since the last SARS, you're building a digital platform. So when the next thing rolls around, we can move quickly and solve problems for humanity and not just for uh, an investor. So, yeah. And that's, that's certainly the goal, right? That's absolutely the goal. So, uh, so I really appreciate the conversation today, Kevin. You bet. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's always fun to to talk about the journey at times and uh, and uh, the good and the bad and the ugly, of course. And uh, you know, but it's it's incredibly rewarding to uh, to build companies and to go after big problems and to work with people who who uplift me every day. I mean, my team. They're an incredible group of people. They're also just really good human beings. And uh, I don't, there's no way I could do this without these folks. So um, we're all, we're all in this together and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, Yash, thanks for coming on. And uh, you know, I think uh, I look forward to joining you in an entrepreneur therapy, entrepreneurs therapy group in the near future, if possible. So that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Thanks for coming, Yash. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.cenaceracapital.com. Cenacera Capital LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cenacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor.